clear idea of what is important, of the results we desire in our lives, we are easily diverted into responding to the urgent. Look for a moment at the four quadrants in the time management matrix. Quadrant I is both urgent and important. It deals with significant results that require immediate attention. We usually call the activities in Quadrant I crises or problems. We all have some Quadrant I activities in our lives. But Quadrant I consumes many people. They are crisis managers, problem-minded people, deadline-driven producers. As long as you focus on Quadrant I, it keeps getting bigger and bigger until it dominates you. It's like the pounding surf. A huge problem comes and knocks you down and you're wiped out. You struggle back up only to face another one that knocks you down and slams you to the ground. Some people are literally beaten up by problems all day every day. The only relief they have is in escaping to the not important, not urgent activities of Quadrant 4. So when you look at their total matrix, 90% of their time is in Quadrant I and most of the remaining 10% is in Quadrant 4, with only negligible attention paid to Quadrants 2 and 3. That's how people who manage their lives by crisis live. There are other people who spend a great deal of time in urgent, but not important Quadrant 3, thinking they're in Quadrant I they spend most of their time reacting to things that are urgent, assuming they're also important. But the reality is that the urgency of these matters is often based on the priorities and expectations of others. People who spend time almost exclusively in Quadrants 3 and 4 basically lead irresponsible lives. Effective people stay out of Quadrants 3 and 4 because, urgent or not, they aren't important. They also shrink Quadrant I down to size by spending more time in Quadrant 2. Quadrant 2 is the heart of effective personal management. It deals with things that are not urgent, but are important. It deals with things like building relationships, writing a personal mission statement, long-range planning, exercising, preventive maintenance, preparation, all those things we know we need to do, but somehow seldom get around to doing, because they aren't urgent. To paraphrase Peter Drucker, Effective people are not problem-minded, they're opportunity-minded. They feed opportunities and starve problems. They think preventively. They have genuine quadrant eye crises and emergencies that require their immediate attention, but the number is comparatively small. They keep P and PC in balance by focusing on the important, but not urgent, high-leverage capacity building activities of quadrant 2. With the time management matrix in mind, take a moment now and consider how you answered the questions at the beginning of this chapter. What quadrant do they fit in? Are they important? Are they urgent? My guess is that they probably fit into quadrant 2. They are obviously important, deeply important, but not urgent. And because they aren't urgent, you don't do them. Now look again at the nature of those questions, what one thing could you do in your personal and professional life that, if you did on a regular basis, would make a tremendous positive difference in your life? Quadrant 2 activities have that kind of impact. Our effectiveness takes quantum leaps when we do them. I asked a similar question to a group of shopping center managers. If you were to do one thing in your professional work that you know would have enormously positive effects on the results, what would it be? Their unanimous response was to build helpful personal relationships with the tenants, the owners of the stores inside the shopping center, which is a quadrant two activity. We did an analysis of the time they were spending on that activity. It was less than 5%. They had good reasons, problems, one right after another. They had reports to make out, meetings to go to, correspondence to answer, phone calls to make, constant interruptions. Quadrant I had consumed them. They were spending very little time with the store managers, and the time they did spend was filled with negative energy. The only reason they visited the store managers at all was to enforce the contract, to collect the money or discuss advertising or other practices that were out of harmony with center guidelines, or some similar thing. The store owners were struggling for survival, let alone prosperity. They had employment problems, cost problems, inventory problems, and a host of other problems. Most of them had no training in management at all. Some were fairly good merchandisers, but they needed help. The tenants didn't even want to see the shopping center owners, they were just one more problem to contend with. So the owners decided to be proactive. They determined their purpose, their values, their priorities. In harmony with those priorities, they decided to spend about one-third of their time in helping relationships with the tenants. In working with that organization for about a year and a half, I saw them climb to around 20%, which represented more than a fourfold increase. In addition, they changed their role. They became listeners, trainers, consultants to the tenants. Their interchanges were filled with positive energy. The effect was dramatic, profound, 
by focusing on relationships and results rather than time and methods, the numbers went up, the tenants were thrilled with the results created by new ideas and skills, and the shopping center managers were more effective and satisfied and increased their list of potential tenants and lease revenue based on increased sales by the tenant stores. They were no longer policemen or hovering supervisors. They were problem solvers, helpers. Whether you are a student at the university, a worker in an assembly line, a homemaker, fashion designer, or president of a company, I believe that if you were to ask what lies in quadrant 2 and cultivate the proactivity to go after it, you would find the same results. Your effectiveness would increase dramatically. Your crises and problems would shrink to manageable proportions because you would be thinking ahead, working on the roots, doing the preventive things that keep situations from developing into crises in the first place. In time management jargon, this is called the Pareto Principle, 80% of the results flow out of 20% of the activities. What IT takes to say no. The only place to get time for quadrant 2 in the beginning is from quadrants. 3 and 4. You can't ignore the urgent and important activities of quadrant I, although it will shrink in size as you spend more time with prevention and preparation in quadrant 2. But the initial time for quadrant 2 has to come out of 3 and 4. You have to be proactive to work on quadrant 2 because quadrants 1 and 3 work on you. To say yes to important quadrant 2 priorities, you have to learn to say no to other activities, sometimes apparently urgent things. Some time ago, my wife was invited to serve as chairman of a committee in a community endeavor. She had a number of truly important things she was trying to work on, and she really didn't want to do it. But she felt pressured into it and finally agreed. Then she called one of her dear friends to ask if she would serve on her committee. Her friend listened for a long time and then said, Sandra, that sounds like a wonderful project, a really worthy undertaking. I appreciate so much you're inviting me to be a part of it. I feel honored by it. For a number of reasons, I won't be participating myself, but I want you to know how much I appreciate your invitation. Sandra was ready for anything but a pleasant no. She turned to me and sighed, I wish I'd said that. I don't mean to imply that you shouldn't be involved in significant service projects. Those things are important. But you have to decide what your highest priorities are and have the courage, pleasantly, smilingly, non-apologetically, to say no to other things. And the way you do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside. The enemy of the best is often the good. Keep in mind that you are always saying no to something. If it isn't to the apparent, urgent things in your life, it is probably to the more fundamental, highly important things. Even when the urgent is good, the good can keep you from your best, keep you from your unique contribution, if you let it. When I was director of university relations at a large university, I hired a very talented, proactive, creative writer. One day, after he had been on the job for a few months, I went into his office and asked him to work on some urgent matters that were pressing on me. He said, Stephen, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just let me share with you my situation. Then he took me over to his wallboard, where he had listed over two dozen projects he was working on, together with performance criteria and deadline dates that had been clearly negotiated before. He was highly disciplined, which is why I went to see him in the first place. If you want to get something done, give it to a busy man. Then he said, Stephen, to do the jobs that you want done right would take several days. Which of these projects would you like me to delay or cancel to satisfy your request? Well, I didn't want to take the responsibility for that. I didn't want to put a cog in the wheel of one of the most productive people on the staff just because I happened to be managing by crisis at the time. The jobs I wanted done were urgent, but not important. So I went and found another crisis manager and gave the job to him. We say yes or no to things daily, usually many times a day. A center of correct principles and a focus on our personal mission empowers us with wisdom to make those judgments effectively. As I work with different groups, I tell them that the essence of effective time and life management is to organize and execute around balanced priorities. Then I ask this question, if you were to fault yourself in one of three areas, which would it be? One, the inability to prioritize, two, the inability or desire to organize around those priorities, or, three, the lack of discipline to execute around them, to stay with your priorities and organization? Most people say their main fault is a lack of discipline. On deeper thought, I believe that is not the case. The basic problem is that their priorities have not become deeply planted in their hearts and minds. They haven't really internalized habit too. There are many people who recognize the value of Quadrant 2 activities in their lives, whether they identify them as such or not. 
and they attempt to give priority to those activities and integrate them into their lives through self-discipline alone. But without a principal center and a personal mission statement, they don't have the necessary foundation to sustain their efforts. There. Working on the leaves, on the attitudes and the behaviors of discipline, without even thinking to examine the roots, the basic paradigms from which their natural attitudes and behaviors flow. A quadrant two focus is a paradigm that grows out of a principal center. If you are centered on your spouse, your money, your friends, your pleasure, or any extrinsic factor, you will keep getting thrown back into quadrants one and three, reacting to the outside forces your life is centered on. Even if you're centered on yourself, you'll end up in one and three reacting to the impulse of the moment. Your independent will alone cannot effectively discipline you against your center. In the words of the architectural maxim, form follows function. Likewise, management follows leadership. The way you spend your time is a result of the way you see your time and the way you really see your priorities. If your priorities grow out of a principal center and a personal mission, if they are deeply planted in your heart and in your mind, you will see Quadrant 2 as a natural, exciting place to invest your time. It's almost impossible to say no to the popularity of Quadrant 3 or to the pleasure of escape to Quadrant 4 if you don't have a bigger yes burning inside. Only when you have the self-awareness to examine your program, and the imagination and conscience to create a new, unique, principle-centered program to which you can say yes only then will you have sufficient independent willpower to say no, with a genuine smile, to the unimportant. Moving into Quadrant 2 If Quadrant 2 activities are clearly the heart of effective personal management the first things we need to put first, then how do we organize and execute around those things? The first generation of time management does not even recognize the concept of priority. It gives us notes and to-do lists that we can cross off, and we feel a temporary sense of accomplishment every time we check something off, but no priority is attached to items on the list. In addition, there is no correlation between what's on the list and our ultimate values and purposes in life. We simply respond to whatever penetrates our awareness and apparently needs to be done. Many people manage from this first-generation paradigm. It's the course of least resistance. There's no pain or strain, it's fun to go with the flow. Externally imposed disciplines and schedules give people the feeling that they aren't responsible for results. But first-generation managers, by definition, are not effective people. They produce very little, and their lifestyle does nothing to build their production capability. Buffeted by outside forces, they are often seen as undependable and irresponsible, and they have very little sense of control and self-esteem. Second-generation managers assume a little more control. They plan and schedule in advance and generally are seen as more responsible because they show up when they're supposed to. But again, the activities they schedule have no priority or recognized correlation to deeper values and goals. They have few significant achievements and tend to be schedule-oriented. Third-generation managers take a significant step forward. They clarify their values and set goals. They plan each day and prioritize their activities. As I have said, this is where most of the time management field is today. But this third generation has some critical limitations. First, it limits vision. Daily planning often misses important things that can only be seen from a larger perspective. The very language daily planning focuses on the urgent, the now. While third generation prioritization provides order to activity, it doesn't question the essential importance of the activity in the first place, it doesn't place the activity in the context of principles, personal mission, roles, and goals. The third-generation value-driven daily planning approach basically prioritizes the quadrant one and three problems and crises of the day. In addition, the third generation makes no provision for managing roles in a balanced way. It lacks realism, creating the tendency to overschedule the day, resulting in frustration and the desire to occasionally throw away the plan and escape to quadrant four. And its efficiency, time management focus tends to strain relationships rather than build them. While each of the three generations has recognized the value of some kind of management tool, none has produced a tool that empowers a person to live a principle-centered, quadrant two lifestyle. The first generation notepads and to-do lists give us no more than a place to capture those things that penetrate our awareness so we won't forget them. The second generation appointment books and calendars merely provide a place to record our future commitments so that we can be where we have agreed to be at the appropriate time. Even the third generation, with its vast array of planners and materials, focuses primarily on helping people prioritize and plan their quadrants one and three activities. Though many trainers and consultants recognize the value of quadrant. 
2. Activities The actual planning tools of the third generation do not facilitate organizing and executing around them. As each generation builds on those that have preceded it, the strengths and some of the tools of each of the first three generations provide elemental material for the fourth. But there is an added need for a new dimension, for the paradigm and the implementation that will empower us to move into quadrant two, to become principle-centered and to manage ourselves to do what is truly most important. The Quadrant Two Tool The objective of Quadrant Two Management is to manage our lives effectively, from a center of sound principles, from a knowledge of our personal mission, with a focus on the important as well as the urgent, and within the framework of maintaining a balance between increasing our production and increasing our production capability. This is, admittedly, an ambitious objective for people caught in the thick of thin things in quadrants 3 and 4. But striving to achieve it will have a phenomenal impact on personal effectiveness. A quadrant 2 organizer will need to meet six important criteria. Coherence. Coherence suggests that there is harmony, unity, and integrity between your vision and mission, your roles and goals, your priorities and plans, and your desires and discipline. In your planner, there should be a place for your personal mission statement so that you can constantly refer to it. There also needs to be a place for your roles and for both short and long-term goals. Balance. Your tool should help you to keep balance in your life, to identify your various roles and keep them right in front of you, so that you don't neglect important areas such as your health, your family, professional preparation, or personal development. Many people seem to think that success in one area can compensate for failure in other areas of life. But can it really? Perhaps it can for a limited time in some areas. But can success in your profession compensate for a broken marriage, ruined health, or weakness in personal character? True effectiveness requires balance, and your tool needs to help you create and maintain it. Quadrant 2 Focus You need a tool that encourages you, motivates you, actually helps you spend the time you need in Quadrant 2, so that you're dealing with prevention rather than prioritizing crises. In my opinion, the best way to do this is to organize your life on a weekly basis. You can still adapt and prioritize on a daily basis, but the fundamental thrust is organizing the week. Organizing on a weekly basis provides much greater balance and context than daily planning. There seems to be implicit cultural recognition of the week as a single, complete unit of time. Business, education, and many other facets of society operate within the framework of the week, designating certain days for focused investment and others for relaxation or inspiration. The basic Judeo-Christian ethic honors the Sabbath, the one day out of every seven set aside for uplifting purposes. Most people think in terms of weeks. But most third-generation planning tools focus on daily planning. While they may help you prioritize your activities, they basically only help you organize crises and busy work. The key is not to prioritize what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. And this can best be done in the context of the week. A People Dimension you also need a tool that deals with people, not just schedules. While you can think in terms of efficiency in dealing with time, a principle-centered person thinks in terms of effectiveness in dealing with people. There are times when principle-centered quadrant two living requires the subordination of schedules to people. Your tool needs to reflect that value, to facilitate implementation rather than create guilt when a schedule is not followed. Flexibility. Your planning tool should be your servant, never your master. Since it has to work for you, it should be tailored to your style, your needs, your particular ways. Portability. Your tool should also be portable, so that you can carry it with you most of the time. You may want to review your personal mission statement while riding the bus. You may want to measure the value of a new opportunity against something you already had planned. If your organizer is portable, you will keep it with you so that important data is always within reach. Since Quadrant 2 is the heart of effective self-management, you need a tool that moves you into Quadrant 2. My work with the fourth generation concept has led to the creation of a tool specifically designed according to the criteria listed above. But many good third generation tools can easily be adapted. Because the principles are sound, the practices or specific applications can vary from one individual to the next. Becoming a Quadrant 2 Self-Manager Although my effort here is to teach principles, not practices, of effectiveness, I believe you can better understand the principles and the empowering nature of the fourth generation if you actually experience organizing a week from a principle-centered, Quadrant 2 base. Quadrant 2 organizing involves four key activities. Identifying roles. The first task is to write down your key roles. If you haven't really given serious thought to the roles in your life, you can write down what immediately comes to mind. 
you have a role as an individual. You may want to list one or more roles as a family member, a husband or wife, mother or father, son or daughter, a member of the extended family of grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins. You may want to list a few roles in your work, indicating different areas in which you wish to invest time and energy on a regular basis. You may have roles in church or community affairs. You don't need to worry about defining the roles in a way that you will live with for the rest of your life, just consider the week and write down the areas you see yourself spending time in during the next seven days. Here are two examples of the way people might see their various roles. 1. Individual. 1. Personal development. 2. Spouse slash parent. 2. Spouse. 3. Manager new products. 3. Parent. 4. Manager research. 4. Real estate salesperson. 5. Manager staff dev. 5. Community service. 6. Manager administration. 6. Symphony board member. 7. Chairman United Way. Selecting goals. The next step is to think of one or two important results you feel you should accomplish in each role during the next seven days. These would be recorded as goals. See next page. At least some of these goals should reflect quadrant two activities. Ideally, these weekly goals would be tied to the longer term goals you have identified in conjunction with your personal mission statement. But even if you haven't written your mission statement, you can get a feeling, a sense, of what is important as you consider each of your roles and one or two goals for each role. Scheduling. Now you can look at the week ahead with your goals in mind and schedule time to achieve them. For example, if your goal is to produce the first draft of your personal mission statement, you may want to set aside a two-hour block of time on Sunday to work on it. Sunday, or some other day of the week that is special to you, your faith, or your circumstances, is often the ideal time to plan your more personally uplifting activities, including weekly organizing. It's a good time to draw back, to seek inspiration, to look at your life in the context of principles and values. If you set a goal to become physically fit through exercise, you may want to set aside an hour three or four days during the week, or possibly every day during the week, to accomplish that goal. There are some goals that you may only be able to accomplish during business hours, or some that you can only do on Saturday when your children are home. Can you begin to see some of the advantages of organizing the week instead of the day? Having identified roles and set goals, you can translate each goal to a specific day of the week, either as a priority item or, even better, as a specific appointment. You can also check your annual or monthly calendar for any appointments you may have previously made and evaluate their importance in the context of your goals transferring those you decide to keep to your schedule and making plans to reschedule or cancel others. As you study the following weekly schedule, observe how each of the 19 most important, often quadrant 2, goals has been scheduled or translated into a specific action plan. In addition, notice the box labeled sharp and the saw that provides a place to plan vital renewing quadrant 2 activities in each of the four human dimensions that will be explained in habit 7. Even with time set aside to accomplish 19 important goals during the week, look at the amount of remaining unscheduled space on the schedule. As well as empowering you to put first things first, Quadrant 2 Weekly Organizing gives you the freedom and the flexibility to handle unanticipated events, to shift appointments if you need to, to savor relationships and interactions with others, to deeply enjoy spontaneous experiences, knowing that you have proactively organized your week to accomplish key goals in every area of your life. Daily Adapting with Quadrant 2 Weekly Organizing, daily planning becomes more a function of daily adapting, of prioritizing activities and responding to unanticipated events, relationships, and experiences in a meaningful way. Taking a few minutes each morning to review your schedule can put you in touch with the value-based decisions you made as you organize the week as well as unanticipated factors that may have come up. As you overview the day, you can see that your roles and goals provide a natural prioritization that grows out of your innate sense of balance. It is a softer, more right-brain prioritization that ultimately comes out of your sense of personal mission. You may still find that the third generation A, B, C or 1, 2, 3 prioritization gives needed order to daily activities. It would be a false dichotomy to say that activities are either important or they aren't. They are obviously on a continuum, and some important activities are more important than others. In the context of weekly organizing, third generation prioritization gives order to daily focus. But trying to prioritize activities before you even know how they relate to your sense of personal mission and how they fit into the balance of your life is not effective. You may be prioritizing and accomplishing things you don't want or need to be doing at all. Long-term organizing. 
Weekly organizing. Can you begin to see the difference between organizing your week as a principle-centered, quadrant two manager and planning your days as an individual centered on something else? Can you begin to sense the tremendous difference the quadrant two focus would make in your current level of effectiveness? Having experienced the power of principle-centered quadrant two organizing in my own life and having seen it transform the lives of hundreds of other people, I am persuaded it makes a difference, a quantum positive difference. And the more completely weekly goals are tied into a wider framework of correct principles and into a personal mission statement, the greater the increase in effectiveness will be. Living it. Returning once more to the computer metaphor, if habit I says you're the programmer and habit 2 says write the program, then habit 3 says run the program, live the program. And living it is primarily a function of our independent will, our self-discipline, our integrity, and commitment, not to short-term goals and schedules or to the impulse of the moment, but to the correct principles in our own deepest values, which give meaning and context to our goals, our schedules, and our lives. As you go through your week, there will undoubtedly be times when your integrity will be placed on the line. The popularity of reacting to the urgent but unimportant priorities of other people in Quadrant 3 or the pleasure of escaping to Quadrant 4 will threaten to overpower the important Quadrant 2 activities you have planned. Your principal center, your self-awareness, and your conscience can provide a high degree of intrinsic security, guidance, and wisdom to empower you to use your independent will and maintain integrity to the truly important. But because you aren't omniscient, you can't always know in advance what is truly important. As carefully as you organize the week, there will be times when, as a principle-centered person, you will need to subordinate your schedule to a higher value. Because you are principle-centered, you can do that with an inner sense of peace. At one point, one of my sons was deeply into scheduling a deficiency. One day he had a very tight schedule, which included down to the minute time allocations for every activity, including picking up some books, washing his car, and dropping Carol, his girlfriend, among other things. Everything went according to schedule until it came to Carol. They had been dating for a long period of time, and he had finally come to the conclusion that a continued relationship would not work out. So, congruent with his efficiency model, he had scheduled a 10 to 15 minute telephone call to tell her. But the news was very traumatic to her. One and a half hours later, he was still deeply involved in a very intense conversation with her. Even then, the one visit was not enough. The situation was a very frustrating experience for them. Both. Again, you simply can't think efficiency with people. You think effectiveness with people and efficiency with things. I've tried to be efficient with a disagreeing or disagreeable person and it simply doesn't work. I've tried to give 10 minutes of quality time to a child or an employee to solve a problem, only to discover such efficiency creates new problems and seldom resolves the deepest concern. I see many parents, particularly mothers with small children, often frustrated in their desire to accomplish a lot because all they seem to do is meet the needs of little children all day. Remember, frustration is a function of our expectations, and our expectations are often a reflection of the social mirror rather than our own values and priorities. But if you have habit too deep inside your heart and mind, you have those higher values driving you. You can subordinate your schedule to those values with integrity. You can adapt, you can be flexible. You don't feel guilty when you don't meet your schedule or when you have to change it. Advances of the fourth generation. One of the reasons why people resist using third generation time management tools is because they lose spontaneity, they become rigid and inflexible. They subordinate people to schedules because the efficiency paradigm of the third generation of management is out of harmony with the principle that people are more important than things. The fourth generation tool recognizes that principle. It also recognizes that the first person you need to consider in terms of effectiveness rather than efficiency is yourself. It encourages you to spend time in quadrant two, to understand and center your life on principles, to give clear expression to the purposes and values you want to direct your daily decisions. It helps you to create balance in your life. It helps you rise above the limitations of daily planning and organize and schedule in the context of the week. And when a higher value conflicts with what you have planned, it empowers you to use your self-awareness and your conscience to maintain integrity to the principles and purposes you have determined are most important. Instead of using a roadmap, you're using a compass. The fourth generation of self-management is more advanced than the third in five important ways. First, it's principle-centered. More than giving lip service to Quadrant 2, it creates the central paradigm that empowers you to see your time in the context of what is really important and effective. Second, it's conscience-directed. 
it gives you the opportunity to organize your life to the best of your ability in harmony with your deepest values. But it also gives you the freedom to peacefully subordinate your schedule to higher values. Third, it defines your unique mission, including values and long-term goals. This gives direction and purpose to the way you spend each day. Fourth, it helps you balance your life by identifying roles, and by setting goals and scheduling activities in each key role every week. And fifth, it gives greater context through weekly organizing, with daily adaptation as needed, rising above the limiting perspective of a single day and putting you in touch with your deepest values through review of your key roles. The practical thread running through all five of these advances is a primary focus on relationships and results and a secondary focus on time. Delegation, increasing P and PC. We accomplish all that we do through delegation, either to time or to other people. If we delegate to time, we think efficiency. If we delegate to other people, we think effectiveness. Many people refuse to delegate to other people because they feel it takes too much time and effort and they could do the job better themselves. But effectively delegating to others is perhaps the single most powerful high leverage activity there is. Transferring responsibility to other skilled and trained people enables you to give your energies to other high leverage activities. Delegation means growth, both for individuals and for organizations. The late J.C. Penney was quoted as saying that the wisest decision he ever made was to let go after realizing that he couldn't do it all by himself any longer. That decision, made long ago, enabled the development and growth of hundreds of stores and thousands of people. Because delegation involves other people, it is a public victory and could well be included in Habit 4. But because we are focusing here on principles of personal management, and the ability to delegate to others is the main difference between the role of manager and independent producer. I am approaching delegation from the standpoint of your personal managerial skills. A producer does whatever is necessary to accomplish desired results, to get the golden eggs. A parent who washes the dishes, an architect who draws up blueprints, or a secretary who types correspondence is a producer. But when a person sets up and works with and through people and systems to produce golden eggs, that person becomes a manager in the interdependent sense. A parent who delegates washing the dishes to a child is a manager. An architect who heads a team of other architects is a manager. A secretary who supervises other secretaries and office personnel is an office manager. A producer can invest one hour of effort and produce one unit of results, assuming no loss of efficiency. A manager, on the other hand, can invest one hour of effort and produce 10 or 50 or 100 units through effective delegation. Management is essentially moving the fulcrum over, and the key to effective management is delegation. Go for delegation. There are basically two kinds of delegation, go for delegation and stewardship delegation. Go for delegation means go for this, go for that, do this, do that, and tell me when it's done. Most people who are producers have a go for delegation paradigm. Remember the machete wielders in the jungle? They are the producers. They roll up their sleeves and get the job done. If they are given a position of supervision or management, they still think like producers. They don't know how to set up a full delegation so that another person is committed to achieve results. Because they are focused on methods, they become responsible for the results. I was involved in a gopher delegation once when our family went water skiing. My son, who is an excellent skier, was in the water being pulled and I was driving the boat. I handed the camera to Sandra and asked her to take some pictures. At first, I told her to be selective in her picture taking because we didn't have much film left. Then I realized she was unfamiliar with the camera, so I became a little more specific. I told her to be sure to wait until the sun was ahead of the boat and until our son was jumping the wake or making a turn and touching his elbow. But the more I thought about our limited footage and her inexperience with the camera, the more concerned I became. I finally said, look, Sandra, just push the button when I tell you. Okay? And I spent the next few minutes yelling, take it. Take it. Don't take it. Don't take it. I was afraid that if I didn't direct her every move every second, it wouldn't be done right. That was true go for delegation, one-on-one -on -one supervision of methods. Many people consistently delegate that way. But how much does it really accomplish? And how many people is it possible to supervise or manage when you have to be involved in every move they make? There's a much better way, a more effective way to delegate to other people. And it's based on a paradigm of appreciation of the self-awareness, the imagination, the conscience, and the free will of other people. Stewardship Delegation Stewardship delegation is focused on results instead of methods. It gives people a choice of method and makes them responsible for results. 
It takes more time in the beginning, but it's time well invested. You can move the fulcrum over, you can increase your leverage, through stewardship delegation. Stewardship delegation involves clear, upfront mutual understanding and commitment regarding expectations in five areas. Desired results. Create a clear, mutual understanding of what needs to be accomplished, focusing on what, not how, results, not methods. Spend time. Be patient. Visualize the desired result. Have the person see it, describe it, make out a quality statement of what the results will look like, and by when they will be accomplished. Guidelines. Identify the parameters within which the individual should operate. These should be as few as possible to avoid methods delegation, but should include any formidable restrictions. You wouldn't want a person to think he had considerable latitude as long as he accomplished the objectives, only to violate some long-standing traditional practice or value. That kills initiative and sends people back to the gopher's creed, just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. If you know the failure paths of the job, identify them. Be honest and open, tell a person where the quicksand is and where the wild animals are. You don't want to have to reinvent the wheel every day. Let people learn from your mistakes or the mistakes of others. Point out the potential failure paths, what not to do, but don't tell them what to do. Keep the responsibility for results with them, to do whatever is necessary within the guidelines. Resources. Identify the human, financial, technical, or organizational resources the person can draw on to accomplish the desired results. Accountability. Set up the standards of performance that will be used in evaluating the results and the specific times when reporting and evaluation will take place. Consequences. Specify what will happen, both good and bad, as a result of the evaluation. This could include such things as financial rewards, psychic rewards, different job assignments, and natural consequences tied into the overall mission of an organization. Some years ago, I had an interesting experience in delegation with one of my sons. We were having a family meeting, and we had our mission statement up on the wall to make sure our plans were in harmony with our values. Everybody was there. I set up a big blackboard and we wrote down our goals, the key things we wanted to do, and the jobs that flowed out of those goals. Then I asked for volunteers to do the job. Who wants to pay the mortgage? I asked. I noticed I was the only one with my hand up. Who wants to pay for the insurance? The food? The cars? I seem to have a real monopoly on the opportunities. Who wants to feed the new baby? There was more interest here, but my wife was the only one with the right qualifications for the job. As we went down the list, job by job, it was soon evident that mom and dad had more than 60-hour work weeks. With that paradigm in mind, some of the other jobs took on a more proper perspective. My seven-year-old son, Stephen, volunteered to take care of the yard. Before I actually gave him the job, I began a thorough training process. I wanted him to have a clear picture in his mind of what a well-cared-for yard was like, so I took him next door to our neighbors. Look, son, I said. See how our neighbor's yard is green and clean? That's what we're after, green and clean. Now come look at our yard. See the mixed colors? That's not it, that's not green. Green and clean is what we want. Now how you get it green is up to you. You're free to do it any way you want, except paint it. But I'll tell you how I'd do it if it were up to me. How would you do it, Dad? I'd turn on the sprinklers. But you may want to use buckets or a hose. It makes no difference to me. All we care about is that the color is green. Okay? Okay. Now let's talk about clean, son. Clean means no messes around, no paper, strings, bones, sticks, or anything that messes up the place. I'll tell you what let's do. Let's just clean up half the yard right now and look at the difference. So we got out two paper sacks and picked up one side of the yard. Now look at this side. Look at the other side. See the difference? That's called clean. Wait. He called. I see some paper behind that bush. Oh, good. I didn't notice that newspaper back there. You have good eyes, son. Now before you decide whether or not you're going to take the job, let me tell you a few more things. Because when you take the job, I don't do it anymore. It's your job. It's called a stewardship. Stewardship means a job with a trust. I trust you to do the job, to get it done. Now who's going to be your boss? You, dad? No, not me. You're the boss. You boss yourself. How do you like mom and dad nagging you all the time? I don't. We don't like doing it either. It sometimes causes a bad feeling, 
Doesn't it? So you boss yourself. Now, guess who your helper is? Who? I am, I said. You boss me. I do? That's right. But my time to help is limited. Sometimes I'm away. But when I'm here, you tell me how I can help. I'll do anything you want me to do. Okay. Now guess who judges you? Who? You judge yourself. I do? That's right. Twice a week the two of us will walk around the yard, and you can show me how it's coming. How are you going to judge? Green and clean. Right. I trained him with those two words for two weeks before I felt he was ready to take the job. Finally, the big day came. Is it a deal, son? It's a deal. What's the job? Green and clean. What's green? He looked at our yard, which was beginning to look better. Then he pointed next door. That's the color of his yard. What's clean? No messes. Who's the boss? I am. Who's your helper? You are, when you have time. Who's the judge? I am. We'll walk around two times a week and I can show you how it's coming. And what will we look for? Green and clean. At that time I didn't mention an allowance. But I wouldn't hesitate to attach an allowance to such a stewardship. Two weeks and two words. I thought he was ready. It was Saturday. And he did nothing. Sunday, nothing. Monday, nothing. As I pulled out of the driveway on my way to work on Tuesday, I looked at the yellow, cluttered yard and the hot July sun on its way up. Surely he'll do it today, I thought. I could rationalize Saturday because that was the day we made the agreement. I could rationalize Sunday, Sunday was for other things. But I couldn't rationalize Monday. And now it was Tuesday. Certainly he'd do it today. It was summertime. What else did he have to do? All day I could hardly wait to return home to see what happened. As I rounded the corner, I was met with the same picture I left that morning. And there was my son at the park across the street playing. This was not acceptable. I was upset and disillusioned by his performance after two weeks of training and all those commitments. We had a lot of effort, pride, and money invested in the yard and I could see it going down the drain. Besides, my neighbor's yard was manicured and beautiful, and the situation was beginning to get embarrassing. I was ready to go back to go for delegation. Son, you get over here and pick up this garbage right now or else. I knew I could get the golden egg that way. But what about the goose? What would happen to his internal commitment? So I faked a smile and yelled across the street, Hi, son. How's it going? Fine. He returned. How's the yard coming? I knew the minute I said it I had broken our agreement. That's not the way we had set up an accounting. That's not what we had agreed. So he felt justified in breaking it, too. Fine, dad. I bit my tongue and waited until after dinner. Then I said, son, let's do as we agreed. Let's walk around the yard together and you can show me how it's going in your stewardship. As we started out the door, his chin began to quiver. Tears welled up in his eyes and, by the time we got out to the middle of the yard, he was whimpering. It's so hard, Dad. What's so hard? I thought to myself. You haven't done a single thing. But I knew what was hard, self-management, self-supervision. So I said, is there anything I can do to help? Would you, Dad? He sniffed. What was our agreement? You said you'd help me if you had time. I have time. So he ran into the house and came back with two sacks. He handed me one. Will you pick that stuff up? He pointed to the garbage from Saturday night's barbecue. It makes me sick. So I did. I did exactly what he asked me to do. And that was when he signed the agreement in his heart. It became his yard, his stewardship. He only asked for help two or three more times that entire summer. He took care of that yard. He kept it greener and cleaner than it had ever been under my stewardship. He even reprimanded his brothers and sisters if they left so much as a gum wrapper on the lawn. Trust is the highest form of human motivation. It brings out the very best in people. But it takes time and patience, and it doesn't preclude the necessity to train and develop people so that their competency can rise to the level of that trust. I am convinced that if stewardship delegation is done correctly, both parties will benefit and ultimately much more work will get done in much less time. I believe that a family that is well organized, whose time has been spent effectively delegating on a one-on-one -on -one basis, can organize the work so that everyone can do everything in about an hour a day. But that takes the internal capacity to want to manage, not just to produce. The focus is on effectiveness, 
not efficiency. Certainly you can pick up that room better than a child, but the key is that you want to empower the child to do it. It takes time. You have to get involved in the training and development. It takes time, but how valuable that time is downstream. It saves you so much in the long run. This approach involves an entirely new paradigm of delegation. In effect, it changes the nature of the relationship. The steward becomes his own boss, governed by a conscience that contains the commitment to agreed upon desired results. But it also releases his creative energies toward doing whatever is necessary in harmony with correct principles to achieve those desired results. The principles involved in stewardship delegation are correct and applicable to any kind of person or situation. With immature people, you specify fewer desired results and more guidelines, identify more resources, conduct more frequent accountability interviews, and apply more immediate consequences. With more mature people, you have more challenging desired results, fewer guidelines, less frequent accountability, and less measurable but more discernible criteria. Effective delegation is perhaps the best indicator of effective management simply because it is so basic to both personal and organizational growth. The Quadrant 2 Paradigm The key to effective management of self, or of others through delegation, is not in any technique or tool or extrinsic factor. It is intrinsic, in the Quadrant 2 Paradigm that empowers you to see through the lens of importance rather than urgency. I have included in the appendix an exercise called a Quadrant 2 Day at the Office which will enable you to see in a business setting how powerfully this paradigm can impact your effectiveness. As you work to develop a Quadrant 2 Paradigm, you will increase your ability to organize and execute every week of your life around your deepest priorities, to walk your talk. You will not be dependent on any other person or thing for the effective management of your life. Interestingly, every one of the seven habits is in Quadrant 2. Everyone deals with fundamentally important things that, if done on a regular basis, would make a tremendous positive difference in our lives. Application Suggestions 1. Identify a Quadrant 2 activity you know has been neglected in your life, one that, if done well, would have a significant impact in your life, either personally or professionally. Write it down and commit to implement it. 2. Draw a time management matrix and try to estimate what percentage of your time you spend in each quadrant. Then log your time for 3 days in 15-minute intervals. How accurate was your estimate? Are you satisfied with the way you spend your time? What do you need to change? 3. Make a list of responsibilities you could delegate and the people you could delegate to or train to be responsible in these areas. Determine what is needed to start the process of delegation or training. 4. Organize your next week. Start by writing down your roles and goals for the week, then transfer the goals to a specific action plan. At the end of the week, evaluate how well your plan translated your deep values and purposes into your daily life and the degree of integrity you were able to maintain to those values and purposes. 5. Commit yourself to start organizing on a weekly basis and set up a regular time to do it. 6. Either convert your current planning tool into a fourth generation, tool or secure such a tool. 7. Go through a Quadrant 2 day at the office, Appendix B, for a more in-depth understanding of the impact of a Quadrant 2 paradigm. Please refer to Appendix B. On the previous pages is a sample weekly schedule from the 7 Habits Organizer. If you would like samples of these schedules, which you can adapt to your current system, please call 1-800-255-0777 or visit our internet homepage at http www.franklincovey.com. These schedules are also a feature of Microsoft Schedule Plus with 7 Habits. Part 3 Public Victory Paradigms of Interdependence There can be no friendship without confidence, and no confidence without integrity. Samuel Johnson Before moving into the area of public victory, we should Remember that effective interdependence can only be built on a foundation of true independence. Private victory precedes public victory. Algebra comes before calculus. As we look back and survey the terrain to determine where we've been and where we are in relationship to where we're going, we clearly see that we could not have gotten where we are without coming the way we came. There aren't any other roads, there aren't any shortcuts. There's no way to parachute into this terrain. The landscape ahead is covered with the fragments of broken relationships of people who have tried. They've tried to jump into effective relationships without the maturity, the strength of character, to maintain them. But you just can't do it, you simply have to travel the road. 
You can't be successful with other people if you haven't paid the price of success with yourself. A few years ago when I was giving a seminar on the Oregon coast, a man came up to me and said, you know, Stephen, I really don't enjoy coming to these seminars. He had my attention. Look at everyone else here, he continued. Look at this beautiful coastline and the sea out there and all that's happening. And all I can do is sit and worry about the grilling I'm going to get from my wife tonight on the phone. She gives me the third degree every time I'm away. Where did I eat breakfast? Who else was there? Was I in meetings all morning? When did we stop for lunch? What did I do during lunch? How did I spend the afternoon? What did I do for entertainment in the evening? Who is with me? What did we talk about? And what she really wants to know, but never quite asks, is who she can call to verify everything I tell her. She just nags me and questions everything I do whenever I'm away. It's taken the bloom out of this whole experience. I really don't enjoy it at all. He did look pretty miserable. We talked for a while, and then he made a very interesting comment. I guess she knows all the questions to ask, he said a little sheepishly. It was at a seminar like this that I met her, when I was married to someone else. I considered the implications of his comment and then said, you're kind of into quick fix, aren't you? What do you mean? He replied. Well, you'd like to take a screwdriver and just open up your wife's head and rewire that attitude of hers really fast, wouldn't you? Sure, I'd like her to change, he exclaimed. I don't think it's right for her to constantly grill me like she does. My friend, I said, you can't talk your way out of problems you behave yourself into. We're dealing with a very dramatic and very fundamental paradigm shift here. You may try to lubricate your social interactions with personality techniques and skills, but in the process, you may truncate the vital character base. You can't have the fruits without the roots. It's the principle of sequencing, private victory precedes public victory. Self-mastery and self-discipline are the foundation of good relationships with others. Some people say that you have to like yourself before you can like others. I think that idea has merit. But if you don't know yourself, if you don't control yourself, if you don't have mastery over yourself, it's very hard to like yourself, except in some short-term, psych-up, superficial way. Real self-respect comes from dominion over self, from true independence. And that's the focus of habits 1, 2, and 3. Independence is an achievement. Interdependence is a choice only independent people can make. Unless we are willing to achieve real independence, it's foolish to try to develop human relations skills. We might try. We might even have some degree of success when the sun is shining. But when the difficult times come, and they will, we won't have the foundation to keep things together. The most important ingredient we put into any relationship is not what we say or what we do, but what we are. And if our words and our actions come from superficial human relations techniques, the personality ethic, rather than from our own inner core, the character ethic, others will sense that duplicity. We simply won't be able to create and sustain the foundation necessary for effective interdependence. The techniques and skills that really make a difference in human interaction are the ones that almost naturally flow from a truly independent character. So the place to begin building any relationship is inside ourselves, inside our circle of influence, our own character. As we become independent, proactive, centered in correct principles, value-driven and able to organize and execute around the priorities in our life with integrity, we then can choose to become interdependent capable of building rich, enduring, highly productive relationships with other people. As we look at the terrain ahead, we see that we're entering a whole new dimension. Interdependence opens up worlds of possibilities for deep, rich, meaningful associations, for geometrically increased productivity, for serving, for contributing, for learning, for growing. But it is also where we feel the greatest pain, the greatest frustration, the greatest roadblocks to happiness and success. And we're very aware of that pain because it is acute. We can often live for years with the chronic pain of our lack of vision, leadership or management in our personal lives. We feel vaguely uneasy and uncomfortable and occasionally take steps to ease the pain, at least for a time. Because the pain is chronic, we get used to it, we learn to live with it. But when we have problems in our interactions with other people, we're very aware of acute pain, it's often intense and we want it to go away. That's when we try to treat the symptoms with quick fixes and techniques, the band-aids of the personality ethic. We don't understand that the acute pain is an outgrowth of the deeper, chronic problem. And until we stop treating the symptoms and start treating the problem, our efforts will only bring counterproductive results. We will only be successful at obscuring the chronic pain even more. Now, 
As we think of effective interaction with others, let's go back to our earlier definition of effectiveness. We've said it's the P-PC balance, the fundamental concept in the story of the goose and the golden egg. In an interdependent situation, the golden eggs are the effectiveness, the wonderful synergy, the results created by open communication and positive interaction with others. And to get those eggs on a regular basis, we need to take care of the goose. We need to create and care for the relationships that make those results realities. So before we descend from our point of reconnaissance and get into habits 4, 5, and 6, I would like to introduce what I believe to be a very powerful metaphor in describing relationships and in defining the P-PC balance in an interdependent reality. The Emotional Bank Account We all know what a financial bank account is. We make deposits into it and build up a reserve from which we can make withdrawals when we need to. An emotional bank account is a metaphor that describes the amount of trust that's been built up in a relationship. It's the feeling of safeness you have with another human being. If I make deposits into an emotional bank account with you through courtesy, kindness, honesty, and keeping my commitments to you, I build up a reserve. Your trust toward me becomes higher, and I can call upon that trust many times if I need to. I can even make mistakes and that trust level, that emotional reserve, will compensate for it. My communication may not be clear, but you'll get my meaning anyway. You won't make me an offender for a word. When the trust account is high, communication is easy, instant, and effective. But if I have a habit of showing discourtesy, disrespect, cutting you off, overreacting, ignoring you, becoming arbitrary, betraying your trust, threatening you, or playing little tin god in your life, eventually my emotional bank account is overdrawn. The trust level gets very low. Then what flexibility do I have? None. I'm walking on minefields. I have to be very careful of everything I say. I measure every word. It's tension city, memo haven. It's protecting my backside, politicking. And many organizations are filled with it. Many families are filled with it. Many marriages are filled with it. If a large reserve of trust is not sustained by continuing deposits, a marriage will deteriorate. Instead of rich, spontaneous understanding and communication, the situation becomes one of accommodation, where two people simply attempt to live independent lifestyles in a fairly respectful and tolerant way. The relationship may further deteriorate to one of hostility and defensiveness. The fight-or-flight response creates verbal battles, slammed doors, refusal to talk, emotional withdrawal and self-pity. It may end up in a cold war at home, sustained only by children, sex, social pressure, or image protection. Or it may end up in open warfare in the courts, where bitter ego-decimating legal battles can be carried on for years as people endlessly confess the sins of a former spouse. And this is in the most intimate, the most potentially rich, joyful, satisfying and productive relationship possible between two people on this earth. The P-PC lighthouse is there, we can either break ourselves against it or we can use it as a guiding light. Our most constant relationships, like marriage, require our most constant deposits. With continuing expectations, old deposits evaporate. If you suddenly run into an old high school friend you haven't seen for years, you can pick up right where you left off because the earlier deposits are still there. But your accounts with the people you interact with on a regular basis require more constant investment. There are sometimes automatic withdrawals in your daily interactions or in their perception of you that you don't even know about. This is especially true with teenagers in the home. Suppose you have a teenage son and your normal conversation is something like, clean your room, button your shirt, turn down the radio, go get a haircut, and don't forget to take out the garbage. Over a period of time, the withdrawals far exceed the deposits. Now, suppose this son is in the process of making some important decisions that will affect the rest of his life. But the trust level is so low and the communication process so closed, mechanical, and unsatisfying that he simply will not be open to your counsel. You may have the wisdom and the knowledge to help him, but because your account is so overdrawn, he will end up making his decisions from a short-range emotional perspective, which may well result in many negative long-range consequences. You need a positive balance to communicate on these tender issues. What do you do? What would happen if you started making deposits into the relationship? Maybe the opportunity comes up to do him a little kindness, to bring home a magazine on skateboarding, if that's his interest, or just to walk up to him when he's working on a project and offer to help. Perhaps you could invite him to go to a movie with you or take him out for some ice cream. Probably the most important deposit you could make would be just to listen, without judging or preaching or reading your own autobiography into what he says. 
Just listen and seek to understand. Let him feel your concern for him, your acceptance of him as a person. He may not respond at first. He may even be suspicious. What's dad up to now? What technique is mom trying on me this time? But as those genuine deposits keep coming, they begin to add up. That overdrawn balance is shrinking. Remember that quick fix is a mirage. Building and repairing relationships. Takes time. If you become impatient with his apparent lack of response or his seeming ingratitude, you may make huge withdrawals and undo all the good you've done. After all we've done for you, the sacrifices we've made, how can you be so ungrateful? We try to be nice and you act like this. I can't believe it. It's hard not to get impatient. It takes character to be proactive, to focus on your circle of influence, to nurture growing things, and not to pull